Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Potential Paradigms. Today, we will be exploring a set of related topics, including the role of critical and rational thinking in our spiritual journeys and spiritual transmission in the context of student-teacher relationship. My guest today is a phenomenal thinker, a consciousness explorer, and spiritual seeker and finder, Amir Friedman. Before we begin, let me tell you a little bit about Amir. Amir became interested in spiritual and existential questions at the age of 17. He joined the Israeli army but became a pacifist after the 1982 Lebanon War. He studied medicine at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, but at the end of the fifth year of his studies, he decided to devote the rest of his life towards spiritual awakening. The next two years of his life were spent in Japan, meditating at a Zen monastery, and the next 20 years were spent doing intense spiritual practice at a community in the U.S. called Enlightened Next. In 2009, he had a parting with this community and returned back to Israel. Currently, Amir is finalizing his PhD at the University of Haifa. His thesis is on the subject of living transcendence, a phenomenological study of spiritual exemplars or teachers, which is based on multiple interviews he has dealt with, with over 36 spiritual exemplars. Amir has written a few books, and his recent and insightful book is Spiritual Transmission, Paradoxes and Dilemmas, on the spiritual path, which is based on his interviews that he did with over a hundred spiritual teachers and students. I was very impressed with this book and I highly recommend it for both students and teachers. And let's now turn to this very enlightening conversation. So Amir, welcome. Hello, nice to see you. Very good to see you. So um, lots of territory to cover here and uh, maybe so we can uh, dive straight in. Okay. Um, to begin with, I, I was, uh, as we were talking earlier before we started, I was really touched by reading the book Spiritual Transmission. And just for the viewers, you wrote this book a couple of years ago, and it goes over a lot of paradoxes and dilemmas that the spiritual seekers might find themselves in in uh, context of their relationship with, uh, with the teachers. Yes. And what I found was that a lot of these paradoxes were very much alive in me. And there were a couple of things that came in. One was, which was good news, was that a lot of people face these questions and challenges. So it kind of eased me in that in a wider context, it was okay. Yeah. But yeah, I would love to dive in to it with you. But one more thing I was going to say is that you highlight the, the value of living with these questions, that these questions are alive in you, even if you don't have the answer. And mm -hmm. that is something I took with me is that I, I felt like reading the book made my process more refined, my questions more refined. But at the same time, I recognize that you return to these questions and have new interpretations and new answers as you circle back. So yeah. thank you again. I, I, I highly recommend this book for, for the listeners. And I think it's a, it's a real service for all spiritual seekers for such a long long synthesis that you have done of your own journey so thank you thank you thank you and uh, may, I, may I add that this is an ongoing uh, study research contemplation for me and also even though the uh, research I'm doing now for my PhD 
is not specifically on the teacher-student relationship. It's more on the state of being, of consciousness, of living in the world, of spiritual exemplars. The question of, well, really my own relationship with some of the remarkable people that I met along the way in this research, uh, that's a very alive question in me. So I'm, I'm, I met some really incredible masters, awakened, enlightened, God-realized uh, people uh, over the last couple of years in my research. And the question of my relationship with them, I'm no longer a, a beginner. You know, I, I, I lived for 22 years with a very charismatic spiritual teacher. So I have that experience. And yet, uh, not yet. And I'm finding myself at the quite ripe age of 63, um, negotiating my relationships with some of these people and finding myself like, do I relate to them as my teacher or teachers or peers, friends, equals? Some of them I definitely recognize have gone further or higher up the mountain than I have. So I have a lot to learn from them, as in some in specific areas, others in the integration of, of different areas. So these are very interesting questions for me uh, now as they were four years ago when I uh, worked on the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wonderful. So maybe, maybe to begin with, one of the themes that I felt was very touching in the book is, or I resonated a lot with, is the ability to think, to critically think and rational thinking and its value. And I'm wondering if you, if we can explore that a little bit as to what do you see is the value for a spiritual seeker? Because in my journey and having spiritual friends, I have noticed that this is not something that everybody resonates with and not everybody questions the path so much. But I found myself to be in that position and I've kind of made somewhat of a piece that that is the template I have and I have to honor that within myself. But it, it has taken me a while to step into those shoes and recognize that, okay, uh, this is what I do. This is very natural for me. And uh, if other people don't want to do that, that's up to them. But if you could kindly take us a little bit into, into why this is important for, for you. Right. Well, I can say that uh, this is one of the main reasons why I decided to go back to the academia, which is that I spoke with some people, some scholars, friends of mine, and I realized that they are much more methodological and in examining their assumptions, their beliefs, and being willing to question them. And in light of that, I realized I, I have not done that to such, with such sharp, critical mind. And that's, that's, a, that's a certain, I would say that's a certain weakness I found in myself. And I thought, well, I can see that in the academia, they train you to think critically, especially, I think, of yourself. So to examine your own beliefs, your own uh, assumptions, put them on the paper so that you can be objective about them and so that other people can also uh, be objective can be aware of them 
That's what, you know, in qualitative research, it's called the researcher's positionality, which means the assumptions, the preferences, the different biases that a researcher has when approaching the topic of research. And as a researcher, you're uh, supposed to put, to include that, to actually have a, have a chapter in, the, in every paper you write, saying something about your positionality and how your uh, background assumptions and beliefs and preferences affected the way you approached the topic and how you interpreted the data so that the readers of the paper can take that into account when they read your paper. And I think that's a very good practice, uh, not only for the academia, but for anybody to actually uh, try to be as objective and clear as possible about why we believe certain things, why we assume certain things, um, and, and look at that. So that's, I think, is more what I mean. That's kind of what I mean by critical thinking. And I think it's a, I would say it's a spiritual practice because, okay, what do I mean by that? I would say that spiritual practice is strips away from you whatever veils, hindrances, obscurations stand between you and reality and being a, being willing and able to scrutinize your own way of thinking assumptions worldview conditioning beliefs is a way of of actually i don't know if we can ever remove them but we can by being objective about them that actually enable us to have more access to reality if that makes sense to you i don't know is that no it does it does absolutely absolutely and uh, i mean it's it's, it's a colossal a colossal topic with many many layers i think but in, in my own journey part of my journey has been to engage in a lot of dialogues at least the modalities i entered in so and and having a little bit of an academic background um, that seems like that's the archetypes maybe not the best word that you know, using question and answer to peel the layers and self-introspection. I found that extremely, extremely valuable. Um, but it's, isn't there also a challenge in that, that at some points we have to suspend that um, yes. introspection? And I, I think you, t- you touch upon that in the book uh, brilliantly at, at different points. And that's where I found it a paradox because it, it really is a paradox. Um, so, yeah, maybe we can go into that. Yeah, great, great question. <laughs> yes, of course, it's really important to bring in that other side, which is that uh, relying exclusively on our uh, intellectual, critical thinking capabilities uh, may, can be a big obstacle because there are certain types of knowledge or of knowing I would say, uh, a more alive, embodied, experiential kind of knowing that actually requires that we put aside, at least for a while, our our, um, 
critical and rational thinking. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we would not have access to that kind of knowing. So it's a, it's a real paradox, and it's a real. It's not science. It's art. How to how to dance with those two poles. On one hand, the need for rational, critical thinking. On the other hand, the need to put aside rational, critical thinking in order to have access to other types of knowing. Absolutely. Yeah, I think one one thing that comes to mind, um, Amir, is especially with academia. That's that's a place I spent quite a lot of time in, and often you can find people who are very good at critical reasoning and rational thinking, but surprisingly, they are still in the in the mode of the intellect, as you were saying, that the spiritual dimension only a spiritual seeker can understand. That is that the the other modes of knowing, as you were saying, where the we discover the limits of our mind. Right. And, but it is interesting because at least in, in my path, and I think you would resonate with that, is that there is a process in the spiritual unfolding where you, you keep discovering the limits of your mind. And the more you discover that and you reach that point, other modes of knowing become, become accessible. Well, wouldn't you say, Kenan, that... Ultimately, we want to be fully integrated and whole, which means that all aspects of our experience, our being, our who we are as a personality, as an individual, and as part of the cosmos, that's all unified and whole, which means also that the different types of knowing that we have emotional, embodied, relational, mystical, etc., and our thinking, uh, intellectual, rational abilities are kind of uh, aligned and in sync. So for most people, that's not the case. And, uh, and I think that by, and a lot of people solve that problem by either saying, I am only rational, I'm only, I'm relying only on the intellect, and anything that the intellect doesn't understand doesn't, uh, is nonsense, <laughs> which a lot of people do. Yes. And the other extreme is saying, well, the mind is a big problem, intellectual, rational thinking is, is the major obstacle, and in order to have access to other much more real types of knowing that that should be rejected and uh which is you know a big <laughs> a lot of people in the spiritual world that's yes. how they solve that's how they solve uh, that problem and i think what we are what both of us are kind of struggling with or trying to uh come to terms with is that no we want we find that there is validity to all these types of knowing, rationality is, is a precious jewel, is a precious gift that enables us to actually, that forces us to be clear and so that other people can understand us and not just either buy or not buy into the same belief system that we have 
but we actually want to be able to to make sense to other people. I think that's a noble that's a noble uh, uh, intention. And so we want all that to kind of come together. And we are we are. It's not a it's it's not an easy task, but I think it's a very much uh, a worthy task. Yes, absolutely. Wow. Um, yeah, it's beautiful what you said, and I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, as definitely in, in the academic circles I was, I could see that there was a bias towards, we live in the Western world right now, where there is an emphasis on uh, rationality. Rationality is everything, and there is no other mode of knowing. And when you go to the spiritual circles, as you were saying, there is a dominance toward the other side where the mind is an obstacle or it can, it needs to be dismissed. Yeah. And uh, as you very beautifully highlight in your book, the various dilemmas that come from, uh, from that in many spiritual communities and the challenges that come with that. Mm -hmm. So uh, the word that you used, I mean, the key is that integralness of realizing that we have this multiple multimodal uh, intelligence or modes of knowing yeah. and uh, developing them to me actually it, it brought a sense of excitement when that was being shown as I was reading reading your book um, that, that all those things can be honored and that all of them have their place and it almost seems like one can one has a toolkit now where one can uh, one can look at, okay, these are all the tools I have. And in this particular situation, which one of those tools or tools I can use uh, rather than just dismissing a whole set of intelligence just like that based on, uh, on a viewpoint or even a belief. Yeah, I, I, I'm fully with you on this. And I think this leads to something which is a, a very alive question for me related to the relation related to the relationship with people who I feel have gone further than I have on the spiritual path and are more evolved or developed or mature in certain areas. So, for example, over the last few years, I, be, I learned to appreciate much more a certain certain ability that I find that uh, female exemplars, spiritual exemplars, generally speaking, with a lot of exceptions, have more than male exemplars. Which, so that this has to do with a more embodied emotional relational that some exemplars, let's, let's, let's leave the male-female question aside. That's not, most, that's not the most important aspect of it. But so let's say I, I met some exemplars that I feel are much more connected and uh, to the emotional intelligence and embodied intelligence and relational intelligence than I, than I am. And so by making myself, by being in a relationship with them and making myself open and permeable to the relationship with them and to their worldview and their type of knowing, I, I feel I'm learning and changing as a result of that. And it's a very, I find it's a very delicate 
dance of opening up to another person, either knowing or sensing or assuming that he or she has access to um, to certain way of knowing, mode of knowing that I don't, or that that is much that I'm not as developed as they are. Feeling attracted to to learn through the interaction with them, to expand, to enrich, to grow my own uh, abilities, myself. So there is a teacher-student relationship in, 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 such, a, in such an interaction. I'm, I'm, I feel that, they, that by, by um, connecting to, to, their, to their perspective, to their uh, eyes and, and, and heart and senses, uh, I can expand myself and I can get access to, to a certain way of knowing that is not available to me as at all or as much. Um, at the same time, I may have other capabilities where I am more evolved or more mature or have developed those tools more than they have. So let's 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 take for example, let's say that I'm meeting somebody who tells me that they are very much in connection with non-human entities and information that comes from nature, nature spirits, all kinds of uh, entities from, not from the human world. Yeah. Uh, I have no idea about this. It's completely not part of my experience. Mm my critical, analytical, skeptical mind says, what, what are they talking about? <laughs> yes. Um, so, but I met some people who, who said that that's, you know, that they have access to non-human uh, entities and the information they bring. And they impressed me as being very authentic. And there is a certain depth and uh, openness and lightness of being and humor and love that I felt from them, which made me very attracted to, to connect with them, to accept their their how they see things and what they talk about, even if it's not part of my experience. So <laughs> I would say maybe in, in contradiction to what I said earlier about critical, the need for critical thinking, I'm letting myself, I'm putting aside my reservations and my hesitations and suspicions in order to be able to deeply connect with such with those people and learn from them and expand and and open to 
maybe they know something, maybe they know a lot that I'm not, I'm not there yet, but maybe I'll, I, I will be there if I, if I kind of join them in what, they're, in what they're experiencing and describing to me. Yes. No, very beautiful, actually. And uh, again, a colossal topic. You know, we could, we could take it in many directions, but something that came to me as you were sharing in this particular example of non-human entities or realms and I also come from a very academic background and, and you, were, you were listing some qualities that you would see in an exemplar. And for the audience, by spiritual exemplar, you mean like a spiritual teacher or spiritual authority that you would relate to those qualities where they're seeming authentic or have for your critical mindset, they have certain abilities that are very developed. So you kind of give them uh, a chance to, right. to go into them. But another thing that came to me is that I'm finding in my experience is that at some point of our journey, and this is the case with this whole conversation that we're having, is that it requires, it seems that at different points, we have a different level of maturity. And that allows us to engage deeply with these questions. And at other times, it might be premature to get into the paradox when it's too early. And, and, and maybe we'll return to that, but I just wanted to say that for me, I'm noticing sometimes that even if a certain dimension, entity or realm is not accessible to me, I know that there is a hidden world, a hidden reality. And that by itself becomes another factor for me to suspend my critical mind, at least for the time being. And and kind of push myself to uh, open myself to that reality and saying, okay, it, it's my perception that needs to be opened up. I'm not seeing it, but I know that there is something there. Mm. Uh, but th- this is more recent in me. So I just wanted to kind of bring that as, a, as something new, which wasn't there before. Can I, can I, um, I'd like, I'd like to respond to, which is, you're bringing another very important point, which has to do with recognizing or sensing or knowing or intuiting where you're at in your journey at this specific moment and what, what's calling you and what appropriate for you to open up to and where that would just lead you off the, the track or the path that you're on and uh, developing that kind of sense and the trust in one's own intuition. And, and also for me, it took many, many years to actually develop a sense that there is a certain path that is right for me, may not be right for anybody else, may not fit anybody else's path, and I'm the only one who can know what it is and what takes me on that path and what leads me off that path at any given time. So that, that may well change, you know, as, as, you, as you, at different times, it means different things. So this also has to be taken into account, and I'm glad you bring it in relation to what I said about opening up to other people who you feel are more mature, evolved, Mm -hmm. 
open than you are to certain aspects. Uh, um, is is I think it's important not to necessarily be overwhelmed by the power and the charisma and the brightness of you know such individuals because as awake or enlightened or realized they may be they may not necessarily be the one just for us at this specific time uh, on our journey so and I think many people when don't spend that much time developing that ability to sense what is right for me at this time. So many people, when they meet the first powerfully charismatic spiritual exemplar or teacher or master uh, in their life, they just are so overwhelmed by their brightness and genius and, and, uh, and power, they just, okay, this, I've never seen anything like it. This is it for me. And this, and then they, they don't go looking for, they don't, they kind of go with that and they, and without taking the time to actually find out maybe there are other teachers who are just as powerfully charismatic and knowledgeable and powerful as the one that I just met and who, who may be more suitable for me. How do I know that this person is, is the best one for me? He may be the best, but he may not be the best for me. So how do I, how do I know that? I think the only way is by actually checking, going to visit different teachers or at least at this at this time uh, and age, we can just uh, watch them on YouTube and get a very decent sense of the different teachers and the different teachings without leaving our computer. Um, so really, really uh, taking the time to to learn the the scene, the spiritual scene, and the different options that we have before deciding. You know that's that's just right for me because how do we know yes yes i, I think that's a it's a very important important topic and as you said um, you know maybe at least for some time we have to we have to explore the other side of the coin would be that one just keeps exploring <laughs> and doesn't doesn't really uh, make a decision mm-hmm. uh, especially in the time that we live in at least just in general the way our technology you know modulates our attention it's it's targeted at just keeping it fragmented and um but um <laughs> I, I i want to tell you my uh, phd supervisor who is also a very good friend of mine um i spoke with her quite a bit about my relationship with the person who was my teacher for 22 years uh andrew cohen whom I met when I was 29 years old. And then I left medical school and I was at the end of the fifth year of my studies and left Israel and went to spend uh, more than 20 years with him. And that ended up with a heartbreak and uh, a collapse of the relationship. And a few years later, a collapse of the whole community that uh, was created around Andrew Cohen. And uh, so my, my PhD supervisor asked me, 
if you could write a letter to to Amir when he was uh, you know at the age of 29 just before his meeting with Andrew Cohen what would you write to him and I took a bit of time to think about it and I got back to her and I said I wouldn't have sent such a, such a letter uh, for two reasons one is that knowing this fellow Amir at the age of 29, he wouldn't, he would have just torn the the letter. He wouldn't have wanted to read it because he was so uh, determined to follow his heart and what felt like uh, an irresistible impulse to, to go and spend time with that teacher that anything that would have anybody and anything that would have tried to take him away from that had to be disregarded. And a lot, you know, and any, anybody I knew <laughs> from my teachers to my parents, to my best friends, they all tried to convince me that that was crazy and that I should at least finish my medical studies, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I just knew that I had to do what I what felt I needed to do. Um, so that was one reason. And the other reason was that I wouldn't, the other reason why I wouldn't send such a, a letter is that I actually feel uh, grateful for the uh, 20 some years I spent with uh, in that situation. And I feel that I matured and learned so many things, including all the heartbreak and the, all the mistakes and suffering um, that I endured and that other people with me uh, endured, all that, well, I can only say for myself. I can't really say for anybody else. I'm sure a lot of people who were in that situation would happily uh, skip those 20 years um, yeah. But for me, I'm actually grateful for, for everything I went through, and I feel I wouldn't want to miss out on any of it. Uh, so that's, that's my perspective with regards to putting aside critical thinking <laughs> and just jumping headfirst, uh, you know. Yes. Whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, no, and I, I actually, I, I read, since I read your book and... Um, it was a very touching story, and I think it kind of forms uh, sort of a continuing thread through through your book. And um, may, maybe I will ask you to unfold that a little bit, if you could, in a few few minutes, if you don't want to go into too much detail, because it, it really gives a good context to some of the things that we've been talking about. One of the things that I had noticed that there was, as you were saying, you were in medical school, very young, you were at your year five, which is pretty much the culmination of the, um, your studies. And then you had this clarity of connection that we're just speaking of, which was a different mode of knowing that made you just leave your studies and, you know, move to the United States from Israel. And um, then you're describing a 20 year process in which there were disappointments. But what I find very remarkable is that you seem to have used everything that took place 
for um, fueling your growth mm. and bringing this uh, message to us today and in, in your book. So um, that, that just is a very unique perspective and that brought a certain kind of humility to me and gratitude as well. What what would you like me to talk about? I, I the there first is a, few, I, a few highlights because you because you mentioned that so it's just to yeah bring into view the intensity of that or the reality of those pivotal moments. Um, well, why don't I? I want to say something about that big moment in my life when I decided to leave medical school and and leave Israel and yes, I'll go spend time with Andrew Cohen. So I, at that point, I had been a seeker for about 12 years because I started my search when I was 16 or 17, when I realized that I didn't know the answers to the most important questions of life, such as who am I, what am I here for, and what is all this? And that as long as I didn't know the answers to these all-important questions, I was basically going along doing what everybody else does, uh, but without really knowing if it's, uh, if it's the right thing to do, if that's what I'm here for. So that really, these questions started my, my spiritual seeking and took me to taking books, participating in retreats, spending two years in a Zen monastery in Japan, and still, I felt that all that did not really bring me any closer to the answers to those questions. So as the years went by, and uh, when I was 29, uh, a dozen years had gone by, I became more and more desperate about the fact that, well... I just spent 12 years without getting anywhere with, with those questions. I could easily spend another 70 years and die without getting what it's all about. And that would be a complete waste of my life. And uh, that realization really made me quite desperate uh, in, in re, you know, and, and, and feeling like something has to shift in me or else I may well spend the rest of my life uh, just being lost like everybody else, pretty much. So a few weeks after I met Andrew Cohen, and really everything that happened in my relationship with him at that point was because we had conversations about those questions and about spiritual practice and spiritual life and, and enlightenment, etc. And as a result of those conversations and whatever was transmitted from him to me, uh, something started to shift in me. And uh, at some point on the lawn of the hospital where I was uh, going for classes, um, I, had, I had an experience or an event of non-dual or unitive consciousness. And for whatever brief moment, I don't know how long it took, but probably not more than uh, a few seconds, I had a glimpse or, no, it was more than a glimpse. You know, when you have glimpse into that which is beyond time and space, 
time, time and space don't make any difference. So it was a, a full event of non-dual or unitive consciousness as a result of which all my questions disappeared, evaporated in the light of something that was way beyond the answer to those questions. It was much bigger than anything I could have imagined. And, and then when I came back to the world of time and space and relationships and Amir Freiman, pretty much immediately I thought, well, this, what just happened to me just now could be another experience in the life, in the narrative of Amir Freiman's life. Or it could be uh, the beginning of a completely new life. And what would make the difference between those two options would be the fullness of my response to what I have just experienced. And I decided, and that, that this is a kind of decision that doesn't happen, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily expressed in thoughts, mm-hmm. but it's, it's more expressed as, as, as an inner knowing or impulse. I decided to basically throw my entire weight on, on the possibility of this being the beginning of a new life. And so it was like, okay, what do I do in order to completely surrender, throw myself into that possibility? And so it was like, okay, so what do I have to give up? I can leave medical school. I can leave Israel. I can go and be with with this teacher. It was like the most extreme response I could imagine in terms of my life and what I had planned for my life and So I was looking for the most uh, committed, serious, uh, unreserved response to something which felt to me like uh, uh, an opportunity to make a complete shift in my life. So that's that's one way of looking at why why I chose such a drastic or dramatic uh, move. Yes, no, thank you for walking us through that. And I, I... As I read that, and I think there are other cases in your in your book as well from other seekers who have shared such profound experiences. And that you know, earlier we were talking about that intuition, and um, another word that comes to mind is signs. Where these such and when a, such an experience comes, it's not from the mind; it's something that almost seems like it's being shown to you, right? Um, and at least from what I felt was, I probably would have done the same, you know, maybe it's too bold to say, I mean, as drastic as your decision was, yeah. it seems like you were honest with yourself. Yes. Um, which also brings to another thing, which is self-honesty. Earlier, we were talking about, you know, thinking on these questions and living, living with, with these questions it requires a tremendous amount of self-honesty. Um, and oftentimes we are uh, scared of, of facing some of these questions on our path. And it's, it's okay to stay in the situation we are in rather than trying to rock the boat and, um, and struggle a little bit. Um, 
but yeah, connect, connecting it back to the intuition aspect, these signs could appear in the form of dreams or such an experience as you shared, um, which can then be used as input for decisions that we make. Um, and then we have this other, other aspect you're sharing, which is self-honesty and living with the questions. And if you're struggling, then that's probably a good thing. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> At least that's what I keep telling myself. And that's what I saw from your book as well, that there was a lot of struggle, but it, it seems that a lot of wise teachers keep pointing to the, to the fact that you're not going to regret it. <laughs> Yes, well, I, I'm, I, I think it's interesting that you brought that in relationship to self-honesty, because I find, for me, I don't know if it's right for everybody, but for me, to be honest, oftentimes means to acknowledge that I, I don't know the answer to some of the most important questions I'm facing, and be willing to bear with it for sometimes many, many years, not rushing to any conclusion or to any ready-made answer, but being honest about the fact that, well, it sounds like a good, a good answer. Maybe, maybe it is the answer, but I'm not completely satisfied. So if I'm not completely satisfied, if there is something in me that is unsure I should keep on looking, I should keep on exploring, even if it's an uncomfortable situation to be in. But for my own integrity, for my own honesty, I prefer to be in a state in which I'm exploring, developing, looking into facing my own shortcomings and mistakes, then jump to some conclusion or some idea that sounds good that would resolve my confusion, uh, but that is not actually, how can I say, is not 100% real for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's um, especially with the big questions, I feel like, um, you know, one of the things that came out in the book as well as the, the paradoxes and the paradoxes sometimes necessarily don't have to be resolved. Uh, right. You live with the paradox and it seems like it, it brings you gifts. And um, some of these par paradoxes that perhaps at the level of the mind are just, just that you just. Yeah. Well, I do think, I mean, just based on my experience, um, that sometimes paradoxes are like, what, what is a paradox? It's like you have two truths or two values that are both critical, crucial, indispensable, and incompatible with each other. <laughs> um, and you find yourself having to live between with, with those two incompatible truths or realizations uh, and, and, and in the dynamic tension between them. Okay, so that's, that's what I refer to when I think of a paradox. Now, sometimes 
and, and it may take dozens of years. Uh, living in that dynamic tension brings you to another level from which the paradox just dissolves in a way that you couldn't have imagined in advance. You just find yourself, oh, I used to see those two as contradictory and I tried to put them together and it never worked. They were like two magnets, not, you know, not really wanting to be brought together. And suddenly, I don't know what, what that all was about, <laughs> actually. It seems like it's not an issue at all. How did that happen? What happened? <laughs> but uh, that happened a few times in my life. And, and so a paradox is a paradox as long as it is a paradox. And then we have to be uh, to accept sometimes the fact that whatever was a major question for us suddenly disappeared like smoke in the wind. Hmm. It's pretty interesting that you you say that. I was going to ask you if you just at the top of your mind if you have any example of one of those paradoxes. Yeah. So okay, the one that comes immediately to my mind because also I, I thought about it and read and, and wrote a lot about it is the paradox of autonomy or independence and surrender, which I think we touched on when I said, you know, there are some people that I feel I have a lot to learn from and develop in the relationship with. And I want to open myself completely to them and even surrender to their higher perspective in some areas, maybe in many areas. So really make, make myself available to their perspective, their, their worldview, their, their heart, and at the same time, not move one inch from where I am really at and be completely true to that uh, in the most radical and uncompromising way. <laughs> So this, this seems like a contradiction. But I say more about that. Um, <laughs> like what you said about being true to where you're at. You know, the, I, I recently discovered there is a, a term in, uh, I think, Hinduism and Buddhism, uh, Svadharma, which means one's individual dharma which is the specific, unique, individual path that each of us has in this lifetime, which is part of the universal cosmic dharma. So the path, the path with capital P of, of humanity, of creation, of, of the cosmos. And it's, it's a relatively new idea for me. And so I don't, I don't really have that much to say about it, except that it seems, it's more and more seems to me as I look into it, and as I look into the experience of other people that I know, that there is truth to it, meaning that each of us does have a very individual, specific role or path to follow in this lifetime that they have to discover and be true to, and, and maybe some teachers or friends can help you, but 
in at the end, you're the only one who can know it. And you're the only one who can know if you're actually on it or have gotten off it, I think, bottom line. That's a very, that's a very austerely independent kind of state or, or realization. Yes. With the practice. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, you know what comes to me is that this perhaps requires a certain kind of ripeness in our spiritual path and maturity. And it's yes, because uh, oftentimes when you're speaking of Swadharma, uh, I understand from what you just defined it. A lot of us might be struggling to find that in, in quite a big part of our journey. Yeah. In, in rare cases, you know, people already might be evolved, which is another topic is, you know, maybe all of us are not at the same level, even if you might age wise, you might be at the same level. And spiritually speaking, there are other paradigms of reincarnation and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, but people are at different developmental stages. I mean, I sometimes see kids and I was like, wow, they, they already seem to know there is for Dharma, as you said, and uh, it's just so, so kind of obvious. So yeah, I, I just wanted to say that that makes perfect sense, but. Can I, can I add another complication to this? Yes. Which is that there are obviously great benefits to being part of a spiritual community or sangha. And there are great benefits to being part of a lineage and a tradition where the knowledge has accumulated over thousands of years. So on the one hand, we want, we want that. We want to be able to be part of a, of a collective learning, evolving, inquiring, moving together and expanding ourselves to be part of such a collective and also be part of a lineage and a tradition that has, you know, all that, uh, a past that started long before us and will continue after us. And how to be part of such situations, whether it's a community, sangha, or lineage, tradition, and be completely true to your own individual svadharma. That's another big question. How do you, you know, <laughs> because usually people sacrifice a lot or, or sacrifice or compromise a lot on their own abilities and strengths and personal individual calling in order to be part of uh, a collective or, or a tradition. And I'm not saying this, this, it's a beautiful thing. I love, I, I, I mean, I, I, I have a great attraction to spiritual communities or, or learning communities. Um, and I think it's a, it's, a, it's a miraculous thing when it's really working and, and living up to the expectations of, of the people in that uh, community. But uh, then the question is, can that happen hand in hand with each individual in that situation growing on their specific individual path and and really benefiting and letting others benefit from their very unique individual abilities and strengths and and calling yes yeah i mean uh 
wow it's uh with, the, with these topics it's like there, there are so many elements that um something that came as um i was reading your book um and i think you're highlighting that again and it's actually very alive for me as well is transcendence and imminence that i think uh, ken wilber wrote a forward to your uh, or after, afterward. afterward to your book which was really yes. nice and that was something that he was bringing out as well um and that that is something i was thinking in parallel and i was like wow you know i think if we did because in a lot of spiritual tradition not traditions but oftentimes it's just all about transcendence and i think maybe also we are entering into an age in which eminence is becoming more uh valued and so you just can't dismiss earlier when we started the conversation you were talking about not dismissing all the various modes of knowing we have which yes. i think connects with this idea of uh eminence um yes and to me part of eminence uh another synonym for it would be creativity 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 okay. uh so because i feel like part of our journeys our spiritual journeys is when we start it's about self empowerment we want to become empowered however we define that and i've been in kind of tantric studying some tantric traditions more in the last few years uh, moving from advaita vedanta and the non dual which i felt like there was too much of a subtle uh, emphasis oftentimes very subtle on transcendence subtle i do, i don't <laughs> no i'm learning of course it can okay. be in in the sometimes it can be very sneaky when it's too okay. obvious that's good because that's right in your face but um okay. oftentimes there's still a hidden emphasis mm. yes of the world being an illusion yeah and when you when you question that people would dismiss oh no it's only a teaching tool but when you look at the sangha and the group think uh, there is this weight that i could always sense yes and uh, i've been studying kashmir shaivism and there is a very mm. uh, strong emphasis on the divinity of being embodied and that being the whole purpose of the play is to embody the transcendence here right and i recently heard from another spiritual uh, teacher who is from the um, from the latin americas he said what what happens if you transcend he said you will you will make it happen and then you will come back <laughs> okay <laughs> because you the way i understand it is you maximize your creativity and this life is creative expression so you realize i am the creator so to speak and then you're back in the game because that's what the creator does he creates so let let me ask you can i can i ask you so what would be the ultimate expression of being fully wholeheartedly embodied immanent here in our in our human body and part of human the human world and nature what would be the ultimate expression of that in a human being well sir in all humility <laughs> that's a big question but uh you know this was one of the things that i wanted to bring to you is the one of the paradoxes that was highlighted in your book for me was 
transcendence and imminence. And um, for me, it's, it's an on, it's, again, it's a question that I live with. Uh, I'm not sure there is an answer, but it is shown to me through these various modalities that we were speaking of, of what would be my highest creative expression and then living a life of devotion and staying true to those and cultivating those. Um, what is interesting is I realize it's, it's hard to predict. It's an unknown of what I can become. Mm. And, and that is, to me, it seems like it's also true of the times in which we live, which is an apocalyptic time where new paradigms uh, can potentially take birth. Um, but the challenge comes is that it's, it's kind of an unknown. We don't know what the future human potential or the, what the next stage of our evolution is. Uh, mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. the transcendent seems to inform uh, the, the maximizing of that potential. You know, without transcendence, we, we're in a situation where our egos might just make us extinct or destroy the planet. Mm. Anyways, yeah, it just it just seems like uh, living with the ideal of maximizing creativity because creativity seems synonymous with freedom. I want to give to try and give a shot and try to answer, even though right. I don't have the, I, I, the questions I asked you about what would be the ultimate expression of imminence of being fully here in. Uh, in a in a in an individual, and and I would love to explore that with you because I don't I don't have the answer, but I think it's a it's a it's an interesting question. Hopefully, it's not a permanent satori. Whatever. So, I'll start, and I and and maybe we can explore that together. Okay, so. The first thing that came to my mind as I was asking that question was that it would have to be a completely spontaneous, natural state. So the ultimate expression of the divine here on earth in a human being would have to be completely spontaneous and natural without any effort. Would you would you agree with that? I, I definitely resonate with it. That um, yeah, who wouldn't want that? Yeah, spontaneous, no effort. Yes. And then, so that I'm just kind of pay, make making like putting some uh, points that maybe we can connect them later. Putting some dots, maybe we can connect them later, or maybe not. I think another dot I want to put is that it. Um, it has to do with uh, wholeness or uh, full integration of all aspects of who that individual is. So from the divine, from their connection to the divine, to the relationship to food and to their children and to their enemies, um, the way they carry themselves, uh, the, the tone of their voice, 
how they respond when somebody scratches their car, <laughs> all that would have to kind of be one united, integrated whole. And maybe a third dot. So the third, the third dot that I want to put is their effect on other people. So there would be something in their presence and in their availability for other people that would be incredible, <laughs> very different from, you know, the self-preoccupation that I think most of us are uh, uh, suffer from. Yes. If one, if one can be fully present, available for other people, fully integrated, spontaneously and naturally without effort, that would be a pretty good... I, I, I think that's kind of a, give us a, some sense of what imminence would be, right? Or, or at least in my... Yeah. I, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, I couldn't agree more, actually. As you were speaking, Amir, I... Um... I felt like it was certain spiritual teachers' images were flashing in my mind uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, who seemed to be embodying those qualities that, that you speak of. And I think that's what happens with our, you know, the, the ideals that we have, some of which you highlighted, the teacher is actually an embodiment of those ideals or at least some of them. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, this, this theme of integration of harmony with the whole not projecting the body or the relative level and just going for the absolute. Another thing that came to me was fearlessness, Uh being ready to die or just being dead. Uh You're alive because you're already dead. (laughs) Beautiful. Beautiful. Um, Well, can I, can I put another dot on the the, uh, sketchboard, Uh, which is love. Yeah. And well, I think love kind of, maybe love is the line that connects all the different dots. Mm. It's that, is that, it's that substance, intangible substance that brings everything together, the divine, the human nature, the cosmos, other people, all different aspects of who we are. That's kind of the glue that, that makes it all one thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I'm using a metaphor. Of course, love, love is a word and it's a metaphor for something, but I'm, yeah. I, think well, I was I, just excited to, um, it triggered an excitement in me to just jump in with you on the, on the subject of love and love in, um, in our spiritual journeys. Mm. Uh, yeah, and a quote came to me, to my mind from the Kashmir Shaiva tradition is that love is the most kind of supreme force. I'm just paraphrasing it. Uh, and even love does not know what love is. I don't know if it's an answer, but it makes it even more profound. Right, right. Um, right. I think uh, one of the themes that has been a thread in our conversation was one's autonomy and surrendering uh, surrender. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And I feel like we, we talked about several elements of that. One was maturity uh, to, to understand what autonomy is, because when we're early on in our development, what seems like autonomy is not really autonomy. Right. It, it could just be a slogan that we saw on a bestseller, <laughs> New York Times bestseller. Right. It's a good bumper sticker. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and it's actually a state of confusion if, you know, when, when we have a culture or civilization that lives by those, which is, we've, we seem to find ourselves in that world where people have slogans, empty slogans that have not really been investigated. Right. And I think uh, you, you highlight this in your book and several of the amazing teachers and students that you have interviewed, um, that they have chosen, they have developed this art, so to speak, where they can suspend that autonomy when, when they recognize that there is someone as a teacher from whom they can receive. Um, but also to highlight what you also said, which is equally important, is the Swadharma, that when we have discovered our independence through our struggle, then um, we, we now know that we cannot sacrifice that no matter what. So, so let's talk for a minute, because I think it's a really important point you bring up. Let's, let's talk for a minute about why it's not a straightforward, usually it's not a straightforward, simple uh, thing to, to be autonomous and, and or, 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 or true to your own svadharma. Um, what are the factors that distract us or... Uh, deceive us to believe that we are being independent while really we are not or quite quite the con quite uh, the opposite of that um so let's why don't we kind of list a few of the f- deceiving factors and um so one i would say is um being confused between what society makes us believe we want and don't want and and what our true self or authentic self or true nature uh, um, tells us. So, for example, I think that nowadays being free for many people means being free to do whatever I want to do whenever I feel like doing it and uh, putting aside any other consideration, uh, which I don't think is, is necessarily a wise thing <laughs> to follow. Um, so that would, be, that would be one mistake. And the other mistake would be the fears and ambitions and desires of our small self, of our historical personal self, which may feel like, or yeah, they may feel like they are coming from our authentic self, but but they are not. They're just coming from a very conditioned and uh, 
constricted personality. So maybe these are two voices that can mislead us in thinking that we are being uh, autonomous or free and independent, but actually that's not what you and I are talking about here. Yes, yes. I don't know if that is possible to discover that autonomy without our struggle, without actually going through that. I think that's part of the the play. Um, As you were describing this, a word that came to me was uh, guidance, that somehow my life, it's not so much about thinking that autonomy is in a way is being guided from the source itself. So it's right. Um, and also joyfulness, you know, is, am I enjoying uh, what I want to create? Because, you know, it seems like it was a theme for you is that, that you, in, in something that you were sharing in the book as well, that you were really creatively driven. It seems like what, when you were feeling autonomous, you were also creatively engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and it's, an, it's, an, it's an interesting thing because, you see, for example, I'll tell you of, a, of an episode in my life when I left the, uh, my, my relationship with my uh, teacher, uh, which was about 14 years ago now. And uh, left the community that I was part of for, for 22 years. And the reason was because I felt that I came to a point in my own journey where I needed to become fully independent. And I realized that as long as I stayed surrendered to that teacher, to Andrew Cohen, uh, that wouldn't happen. I, for whatever reason, my relationship with him, his his uh, his uh, position, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, there are different factors there that did not allow me to um, become completely free while in a relationship of a teacher-student, while being in a teacher-student relationship with that person. So I broke. So I at that point, that was the end of our relationship. When I realized that. And I left the community, and, uh, and then I had a few months of profound disappointment, heartbreak, and uh, depression. And I was uh, literally sick in bed for probably between a third and a half of that, uh, of that time uh, with different uh, physical symptoms. Um, t- especially being very tired and uh, anyway, depression. Yeah. <laughs> and I knew I did the right thing and I was, uh, something in me was rejoicing and feeling completely inspired and energized and happy about the choice that I made and the new chapter that Uh, was starting in my life. So this sounds completely crazy. How can one be depressed, tired, disappointed, disillusioned, heartbroken, and happy 
energized, confident, and inspired. I don't know how the, how the two things can coexist, but in my experience, that's actually what was going on. So why did I mention that? Because you, you, you said something about the joy of actually following your heart or your, your uh, authentic uh, path. And, and I, I felt I wanted to add that, that it's a specific type of joy, specific, t- specific kind of inspiration and of knowing, which can go hand in hand with struggling like hell and feeling horrible. And, and, and somehow the two can, can, uh, can go together. Yeah, you just described my life. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just seems that the, you know, our, our development at some point, maybe in our spiritual journey, we associate it with having the perfect mate, you know, a lot of wealth and abundance. Uh, but to me, at least, I'm surrendering to the fact that, it, you know, will I do my swadharma? even if those things were absent, right? that the struggle, uh, there's a lot of struggle in the creative process. And, and may, maybe this is also a phase of our, our development. I think for me, a lot of the struggle is, um, you know, clarifying my actions. And sometimes there, there, there is doubt or what you want to do is too hard, seems seemingly hard. And then having following through and having commitment is where the challenge comes. But clearly, as you said, is if you had a litmus test of seeing the flow of energy in your system and your psyche and that very different quality of joy, uh, that you know this is the best thing you can do right now. Is this Wonderful, thing. wonderful. I really applaud you. It's beautiful what you just said. Thank you. Um, Another thing that jumped in my mind was, uh, Amir, which is another struggle is we were talking about autonomy and there is also this quality of claiming your own independence, which seems like at different points is a choice. And we can, I'm not very clear about it, but it seems like in our process, we can choose not to do that sometimes. Take a back step where sometimes we actually have to uh, step in the shoes of the, you know, what we're getting subtle or very clear signals of what independence is. I was wondering if you had any, any thoughts on that. Well, um, (laughs) my thought is that you're touching on a very, very subtle and uh, delicate question here. And that I don't know if we can really draw the line that would make clear distinctions between, I don't even, I, 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 it's so subtle, I don't, I don't, I can't even find the words. Yes, no, yeah, and, and I, I was, you know, that's beautiful. Thank you for, for being, you know, being, being very honest about that. Um, and I think, I think with a lot of topics that we're, we're talking about is more like it's an art form, right? Say again? It's, it seems like more like an art 
a lot of the subjects that we're talking about. It's not like, oh, it's autonomy versus surrender. Yes. It's something that your own intelligence and wisdom, perhaps a more appropriate word, wisdom and love that can make the choice in the moment as the situation is unfolding. Well, I like, I like the, the metaphor of, uh, of a dance in which, you know, you improvise in movement whatever feels right uh, to express or to, or to give yourself uh, to at any moment. And sometimes it feels like part of the dance is just like being completely still for a moment or two or, or, or a year or two. <laughs> and other times it's being kind of rolling and, 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 and you know, allowing yourself to be completely not knowing what's up and down. Yes. And other times it's a, so, so you really have to feel into it and, and sometimes it's stumbling and, and, and falling and breaking your nose. <laughs> That's also part of the dance. I have to say a lot of, a lot of my lessons came from uh, hitting the wall. Yes. Or, or, or falling into uh, some uh, dark alley, <laughs> not knowing how I would get out of it. Um, so, yes, it's an interesting dance. Sometimes, it, sometimes that dance feels like you're in the midst of a, of a storm, of a hurricane, and you, you have no idea how you're ever going to get out of it. And then when it passes, and sometimes it takes a long time before it passes, you're like, oh, I, somehow I kept, I kept moving within that storm and came out uh, the other end. And uh, how did I do that? I don't know. But that's, that's part of it. Yes. Yeah. Beautifully expressed. Um, yeah, I know that we don't have a lot of time and some of these themes are so rich. So maybe I could, something that was coming to me, maybe we could, we could see if we can run with that. Um, which is an overarching theme of your book and also some of the subjects we're talking here about. Um, do you think that we currently live in an age of integration? Because even the, like, the kind of book that you wrote and the kind of themes that we're going into, I wonder if these conversations would happen 100 years ago or 500 years ago. Um, right. Good question. I think, I think that there were times in history, such as I, I imagine the golden age in Spain, when uh, Muslim, Christian, and Jewish thinkers and theologians met to learn from each other and, and reach their own spiritual path or religious path. But definitely uh, the potential for getting to know different worlds and different worldviews than our own and to be exposed to different ways of looking and ways of responding to life and to the world. That's something that's happening uh, at, our, at our time much more than uh, 100 or 200 or definitely 500 years ago. Um, so 
I'm not I'm not a historian or a sociologist of, of uh, religion or spirituality, so I can only speak about my own experience. My experience is that because, for example, you and I come from very different backgrounds, and uh, technology, social media enable us to meet and get to know each other a little bit and have conversations in which we share our perspectives coming from very different cultures and geographical places. And and to whatever extent, you know, we're capable of opening ourselves to each other and expanding our our world and expanding our, our view. So in terms of being able to recognize the multifacetedness or multidimensionality of who we are as human beings, I think this uh, age is allowing us that possibility much more than ever before. Whether that would also bring integration with it, good question. Uh, I think the question we have to ask is which factors would facilitate in us, in each of us, such integration and which factors would hinder or be uh, an obstacle to such integration. Um, And that's a very personal question. I think, for example, I just, one thing that comes to mind, I think humility is a very contributing factor to integration, while pride and rigidity and superiority can be a big obstacle to integration, right? Because, because they, they basically fixate you in, in who you already are and, and prevent you from integrating everything that is not already part of who you are. But that's whether, whether and to what extent we allow ourselves to be humble and open and uh, uh, fluid with whatever is coming our way and with the different people that we meet. That's, that's a completely personal question. This is not a cultural issue, I think. Yeah, yeah, no, no absolutely. I think it's very interesting that you you also mentioned technology because we're almost have a technology that's making us omnipresent, I think, or a little bit non-dual. I just had a conversation on the subject of technology and possible futures and spiritual futures was one of the the things, Mm. you know, and as I was reading your book, one of the themes that kept coming to me is like the, what is, what is a teacher? And maybe we'll talk about that later, but, it seems like your conversations, your questions were refining something. There was a potential for refinement. Uh, if mm-hmm. a teacher read that or a student read that, that our processes mm-hmm. could become more refined. Right. Um, right. And it was coming from so many different traditions and modes of student-teacher relationships that it seems like it at least provided, what, as you were saying, the facilitation of integration. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. 
Amir, for, uh, for, for taking us to the land of paradoxes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, same here. I really enjoyed this.